Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Christopher Burris. He is a professor of psychology at St. Jerome's University, one of the six faculties that makes up the University of Waterloo. And today we're going to talk about his book, Evil in Mind, The Psychology of Harming Others. So, Dr. Burris, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much, Ricardo. Thanks for having me here. So let's start perhaps with a definition, I guess. Um, how do you define evil from a psychological perspective? Because I guess that when people usually talk about this term, they're usually referring to some sort of moral, philosophical term, right? Yeah, the, certainly evil is something that philosophers have looked at. It's certainly something that theologians and followers of faith traditions have looked at. Um, but beyond that, uh, I would argue is clearly a psychological term that a lot of people use. It's not an outdated term. In fact, uh, I'm working uh, with, uh, with a research assistant now. We're actually combing uh, Twitter uh, for uses of evil, and we've got some preliminary data. We sampled a period for a couple of weeks about a year ago, and uh, evil is being tweeted and retweeted about 5,000 times a day, at least across the world, and so we're trying to track some of the patterns as to when that's going to be used. So, uh, so given that there's that much uh, uh, usage amongst non-specialists, we say at the term, it seems like a significant term that deserves psychological analysis. And so, so um, the first thing that I'm going to say about evil may sound not profound at all and very unsatisfying. But uh, to me, I think a foundation to understanding evil from a psychological perspective is that evil is a label. And so what that means is that means it is a, you know, it is something that uh, a perceiver puts on a behavior or puts on a target, another person, an unseen entity or something of that sort. And um, that's, although that sounds maybe very simplistic, uh, the implications of that are quite profound because what it suggests is that if evil is a label and the psychologists we've studied a lot about uh, labels if we have some sense of uh, how labels uh, are applied how labels are used what some of the decision rules are uh, by which people apply labels to things then we can understand what uh, evil is, psychologically speaking. Um, and also on the other end, when we label something, that has significant consequences. So a very simple example I've got, to, I've got here, you know, this thing. And if we saw this, you know, outside in the grass somewhere, uh, if we, and if it's dark, and if we think that that's a cord, or we think it's a worm, or we think it's a snake, you know, it's still this thing, but depending on how we perceive it, what we label it, our reactions to it are going to be very different. So the labeling process is very, very fundamental in psychology. So the reason why that becomes important then is if evil is a label, then what can we learn about evil by learning about labels? Well, one of the, the things that, that uh, labeling oftentimes involves is a prototype. Prototypes are basically... Uh, collections of whatever are regarded as the key features of something. So, you know, so for most people, if we think about a chair, 
when I ask you to think about a chair, there are probably certain features that show up there. You know, I mean, any, any cartoonist, any little kid, if you ask them to draw a chair, it's going to have a back. It's going to have a seating area. There's going to be certain proportionality to it. It's not going to be too, too wide. It's not going to be too tall. It's going to be certain essential features that define the chairness of the chair, right? Well, if that's true, uh, if labels often involve prototypes, then does evil have a prototype? And the argument that I make is yes, there is a prototype of evil. And uh, it centers on three characteristics. If we focus in on evil behavior, then the three essential features are, do we perceive harm? Do we perceive intent? And so in other words, harm that is intentional. And then the third piece, which is the absolute uh, essential one, is whether or not that intentional harm is perceived as unjustifiable. Unjustified intentional harm, that will tend to max out evil ratings in people's minds. And so one of the reasons why justifiability then becomes so important, that becomes a way of making sense out of, you know, really simple observations like most of us don't see ourselves and what we do as evil. Well, why is that? Certainly we do harmful things to others sometimes. Certainly we do so intentionally. But most of us think we don't necessarily always have good reasons for why we do what we do, but at least we have good enough reasons. We have enough to justify our behavior so we don't see what we do as evil. But if someone else may be doing a similar harmful thing, doing it clearly intentionally, but we don't see their uh, behaviors being justifiable from our perspective, we're going to be more likely to see that as evil. So harm, intent, lack of justification, those are the three sort of prototypical features of evil behavior. By the way, do you have any idea if these features are universal, that is, if they apply across human cultures? Uh, Certainly, we don't necessarily have a random sample of the, of the world to be able to sort of verify that. But uh, my sense is um, what we do know is uh, there's an awful lot of research that suggests that uh, um, principles of justice and fairness and that sort of thing are pretty broad based. And there's even some, you know, uh, some research in other species, so like other primate research and so forth, suggests that, you know, uh, that there's a sense of fairness there. There's a, a fascinating mm -hmm. little uh, video where, you know, a uh, um, the primate is is expecting a particular treat, and they're given something else, and so they throw it back. Uh, oh, they, it's that one, the experiment done by Franz Duval, right, with the capuchin <laughs> monkeys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a sense of no way, man, you know. So so we, we know that, that something like that, something as basic as justice or fairness or something becomes relevant. And so when we start talking about things like justice, fairness, and so forth, that opens the door for things being seen as unjust or unfair. And it's only a small skip and a jump from unfair to unjustifiable, right? So I think we can make the argument, at least provisionally, that we're talking about a broad-based phenomenon. In fact, you know, in, in uh, not every, you know, citation, for example, that I use in my book, you know, directly involve, you know, evil as a key word, 
but uh, I was able to draw on research from you know six continents, everybody, but Antarctica. Sorry about that. Uh, to to make the case for some of the principles of evil that I'm talking about. So I think we're looking at something that is, in fact, pretty broad based. So you told us about the three feature model of evil, but in the book you also talk about the myth of pure evil and it apparently has six components. So could you tell us, first of all, what is this myth about and what are its six components? Yeah, um, one, of the, uh, one of the important distinctions that I make early on is between evil behavior and evil doers. And there's a logical link, but an important distinction as well. Uh, clearly, an evildoer is someone who's seen as having engaged in evil. Now, it raises lots of interesting questions. Uh, how many evil acts does it take to make an evildoer? Right? And that's, that's a, its own conversation. Uh, I'm playing, I've played around with an idea that you know, it's possible that one evil act may be enough to make an evildoer if it is sufficiently harmful and if uh, it occupies what I call a thick slice of time in uh, not only the perpetrator's life, so premeditation, reminiscence, but also a thick slice in the victim's life. In other words, uh, this harm is not short-term, but this has long-term consequences. So the myth of pure evil was a, uh, a concept developed by uh, Roy Ballmeister, who is very influential uh, social psychologist and a big influence on in my own thinking because uh, around 97 he wrote a book on the psychology of evil that I used as a textbook for many many years in my own psychology of evil class and um, in his uh, book on evil when he uh, describes the myth of pure evil uh, the myth of pure evil is essentially a stereotype about what evildoers are like and so the idea is there may be elements of truth under some occasions, some of the time for uh, those things. But the thing about stereotypes is they treat things as sort of uh, this one feature is descriptive for all members of this category at all times. Uh, so he starts out with a definition of evil that is, that is close to mine. He talks about evil as intentional harm. Now, in his writings, uh, the notion of lack of perceived justification, that third feature in my model, is implicit there. Uh, he never really makes it as explicit as I do in the model. But so he starts out with evil as intentional harm. But then when he goes on, you know, most of the rest of the features of the stereotype of evil are about evildoers. So he says that pure evil is, uh, it opposes order, peace, and stability. Pure evil is sadistic. And so they're committing harm just cause, just because it brings them pleasure. And, you know, we'll talk about uh, sadism in a few minutes. Uh, uh, and, and the thing about the pure, the myth of pure evil, it doesn't uh, simply involve perpetrator. It also involves the victims. What do we know about the victims? Well, the victims of pure evil are portrayed as innocent and good. And so there is this, you know, polarity there. Uh, pure evil is the enemy, the other. The last feature that he talks about, which I think is especially interesting, is pure evil is essentially unchangeable, right? It's always been that way, it always will be that way. There's some really powerful implications associated with that last statement. Uh, it sets behavioral expectations. 
if people label someone as an evildoer and that myth of pure evil gets activated and we apply that stereotype to them, a whole set of implications get triggered when we apply that evil label to a person. Among other things, it says we know what to expect of them. We expect them to continue to cause unjustified harm, to do so intentionally, to do so because they take pleasure in it. We can't expect anything different from them. Because we can't expect anything different from them, they are, for all practical purposes, irredeemable. They're beyond the human realm. They become something completely different. Okay. And so the argument that Ballmeister makes is that uh, this is a way over the top uh, portrayal, but it is one that influences how people perceive evildoers once they've made that connection, once they've applied that label. And what can be some of the consequences of applying that label if people think that someone is just beyond redemption? I mean, don't they feel like entitled to treat her as they wish, let's say? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the beautiful thing about this, I mean, beautiful in the sense that there's a conceptual elegance to it, what that allows the individual perceiver to do is they can intentionally harm those that they perceive as evil and feel justified in the process and so therefore avoid being evil themselves and in fact be good right because if we frame things in a battle of good versus evil if i am attacking the evildoer, that makes me good, right? And there's actually, you know, and, and I and my colleagues, we've done some research on this. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about maybe hate uh, in a few minutes, but, uh, you know, there's one particular form of hate that we've sort of conceptualized and measured uh, that we call nihilistic hate, which is sort of the, intended to be the flip of altruistic love. Altruistic love is benefiting the other for no other reason than we want the other to be okay. Nihilistic hate is essentially wanting the, the target to, to disappear from the face of the earth, right? Well, we actually show that when an individual is perceived as evil, the likelihood of directing nihilistic hate towards that person is increased. And so we want evildoers to be wiped off the face of the earth. And that should make some sense if we see evildoers as irredeemable. If they are not capable of changing, if they don't want to change, if it's not in their capacity, then they remain this persistent threat unless we do something with them. And so they either have to be contained or in worst cases, destroyed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, another specific thing, sometimes it seems that people associate evil or label uh, symbols, certain symbols as uh, evil. How do they do that? Yeah, there's a there's a couple of ways that 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 uh, comes about. Um, we actually did a uh, a study. Uh, and this is one of the one of the ones we have published. We can link it back to myth of pure evil. We uh, we created a myth of pure evil scale based on Baumeister's description of it, mm -hmm. and uh, we did a. Uh, a simple three-group experiment where uh, our three groups were randomly assigned to one of three different conditions, either exposure to evil symbols, exposure to religious symbols, or exposure to neutral symbols. 
and evil symbols, the way, the way we set that up, we had sort of a, uh, a um, picture and label matching exercise. So we had, you know, we had a Nazi swastika, we had a 666, we had a serial killer symbol, we had a, a satanic goat's head there, the seagull of Baphomet, and we had the labels down. So people were simply supposed to match those things up. The idea is, regardless of whether they got the answers right or wrong, get these symbols in your head. So people did a matching exercise, either for evil symbols, religious symbols, or neutral symbols. And then after that, immediately after, we had people complete a myth of pure evil scale. And what we actually found is that people who were exposed to evil symbols scored higher on Ballmeister's uh, based myth of pure evil scale, or scale based on his ideas, compared to the religious or neutral symbols condition, which didn't differ from each other. And so exposure to evil symbols was enough to tr trigger the myth of pure evil. Now, why is that? Well, um, one possibility is that uh, evil symbols have, uh, you know, we can almost go back to, you know, basic uh, pairing in a learning paradigm, right? They see this associated with this, and so these two things become connected. And so if people see, for example, well, a symbol of Satan or a symbol of a serial killer or a symbol of, you know, a Nazi regime, then the understanding is, well, those symbols are connected to evildoers. And so, you know, if that pairing happens, then simply exposure to the symbol may be enough to evoke a lot of those expectations, right, through the simple pairing process. And... Um, one of the uh, things that I think may intensify that sometimes is that uh, of all the ways an individual might uh, choose to present themselves, what if part of their presentation involves connecting evil symbols to themselves in some way? Let me explain. There was another uh, study that we did a number of years ago, and this is one that we never published, but it, it's some fascinating results. Uh, we have people read about uh, somebody, it's a, it's a hot night, they can't sleep, they're looking outside and in the street light, they hear this commotion, they see somebody standing on top of a car with a baseball bat and they're smashing doors and they're smashing windows and they're doing other things. This person is out there without a shirt and all you can see about them in the, in the street light is they've got a tattoo on their chest. Mm -hmm. And in the two conditions of the study, that tattoo either looked like a plus sign or maybe a cross or it looked like a swastika. And so this individual goes away. We ask people, you know, how do you react to this person and what they did? Well, um, those who saw this individual, keep in mind, all the details of the story were the same except for the tattoo that they had. Those who read that the individual had a swastika tattoo said that that person was more evil than when they didn't have that tattoo. Now that was interesting, okay? And that would suggest, okay, of all the things that you can put on your body, you put this, what does that say about you? Okay, that's fine. What was more interesting is we not only asked people how evil they thought the person was, how evil did they think the behavior was. They saw the behavior as more evil when the protagonist with the swastika tattoo did it. Now, the fascinating thing about that, it's the same behavior. So the behavior is more evil because a person with an evil symbol attached to them did it. So, so that's one way by which evil symbols get their power, okay? 
but uh, there are other uh, contexts that, that's a little bit more subtle. There's one interesting inter uh, interview-based study by Alford back in the late 90s, and um, he doesn't unpack a lot of his methodology in great detail, but he's interviewing people about what evil meant for them. And he said, for a lot of people, sort of their first sense of evil was being downstairs in a creepy basement. And that's fascinating, this idea of a creepy basement gets associated with evil, he said. And what is that telling us? To me, that is telling us that uh, it's hard to understand evil as a label and as a concept apart from the feelings that it evokes in somebody. And so if people feel as if there is this unseen, undifferentiated menace, threat, the possibility that, you know, there could be something there that intends to harm them without justification, the basement itself becomes a symbol of evil. Why? because it's paired, apparently, with that awful feeling. So that's another way by which symbols can get their power because of how they make us feel. Mm -hmm. So when someone is labeled evil or an evildoer, what do they do to try to deflect the label? Uh -huh. Well, more important, the foundational question is uh, not so much uh, what do they do, but why do they do it? And that's the, that's the more foundational issue. And so um, I refer to this uh, concept as the Mark of Cain. And that refers to the story that comes out of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Uh, Cain and Abel, their brothers, uh, there is some sort of dispute. Uh, Cain uh, kills his brother Abel, tries to cover it up. God confronts him, he lies about it. And ultimately, uh, God says to Cain, you know what, for what you did, um, you know, and, and Cain is feeling extremely vulnerable. He's saying, you know, look, people may kill me now. God says, nobody won't kill you. I'm going to mark you. I'm going to mark you and essentially banish you. And Cain's reaction is very interesting. He says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. In essence, uh, one interpretation of what was happening with the Mark of Cain is by being marked, uh, the Mark of Cain basically says, you're not allowed to be part of the community anymore. You're being banished. You're on the outside. You're forever on the outside. And so when I talk about evil, the label of evil is the functional equivalent of being branded with the Mark of Cain. It is the ultimate signifier of social rejection. The reason why that's a big deal is in you know, recent research. I know um, Mark Leary, somebody you interviewed uh, you know, a while back, has uh, participated in that. The social rejection is physically painful. The same brain areas that light up when we experience social rejection is when we experience physical pain. So this idea of avoiding the mark pain avoiding being labeled evil is absolutely fundamental to understanding how evil works. That's why none of us wants to be seen as evil. That's why no, none of us under most circumstances want to see ourselves as evil. In essence, we're wanting to avoid the pain that comes with social rejection of wearing that label. And so the idea is then, if that is this deep-seated motive to avoid being labeled evil, what do we do? Well, uh, there's a whole toolbox of strategies that we can do, right? 
So, uh, so one possibility, um, and this is sort of a pop culture reference, I refer to it as the Shaggy defense. Uh, Shaggy was a rapper who wrote this song called It Wasn't Me. And so mm -hmm. he's talking about caught in the middle of wrongdoing, simply say, it wasn't me. Okay, so it's a very simplistic approach, but where people say, you know what, you've got the wrong person. I wasn't involved in that at all. You know, you can't, you know, it, you're, I'm, you're falsely accusing me, right? So that's one possibility. Simple denial of any kind of involvement. Another possibility is something that's referred to as moral licensing, whereby an individual says, you know, yeah, I did this thing. It wasn't great. It, yeah, maybe it was even kind of bad. But you know what? I've done a lot of good, too. You know, I've done all kinds of good. I've got a lot of credits. So, you know, so yeah, I burned some credits. But on balance, I'm still good enough to not be rejected, to not be cast into outer darkness. So that's another possibility. A third sort of cluster of strategies then has to do with uh, the evil prototype itself, right? If we said that the prototype of evil behavior involves harm, intent, lack of justification, then one way of trying to deflect the evil label and thereby avoid Mark pain is to dismantle the prototype of evil as being applicable to our own behavior. And so that gives us a very clear uh, menu of strategies for things that we might do. So one will be try to minimize the harm. So the idea is, you know what, they're, they're, they're being babies about it. You know, they're, you know, they're saying there's all this harm, but it really wasn't that big a deal, right? Uh, so there wasn't that harm at all. In fact, you know, they may have actually appreciated it or they may will someday appreciate it. So, you know, so harm isn't a big deal. So that's one possibility. Second has to do with intent. I mean, uh, you know, little kids learn this early on, you know, when they're busted or something. I didn't mean to, right? And so the whole idea of I didn't mean to, you're basically saying, don't label me as evil because what I did wasn't intentional, right? So, so that can be a way, a way of protesting sometimes. But interestingly enough, sometimes people can uh, attempt to be uh, proactive and reduce their own sense of intentionality by trying to get into some kind of altered state of consciousness, you know? Um, a person says, okay, uh, I'm going to get myself, you know, under the influence of something so I can go through certain behaviors, but without having a sense of being fully in control of my actions at the time. And so uh, people can try to subjectively reduce their own sense of intentionality proactively before they engage in whatever they're going to do. So that's harm, that's intent, that can be downgraded. The other thing then is the full menu of uh, strategies involving kind of a justification angle, okay? Mm -hmm. So um, so what do some of those things look like? Well, um, one possibility is to say, you know what, um, I'm good, okay? And so it's sort of the ultimate justification. It's the greatest distance from evil. You're calling me evil. In fact, I'm good because my reason for doing what I did is a noble one. This is bigger than you and me, okay? You know, it's uh, I'm acting on behalf of all of those who couldn't act, or I'm acting, you know, based on a divine mandate of some sort. And so, you know, you're calling me evil, but I'm actually good, okay? Mm -hmm. so, so I have great reasons for doing what I'm doing. So that's one possibility. Another possibility, it downgraded just a little bit, uh, 
I won't say that I'm good, but at very minimum, I'm not bad. And so this could include things like uh, revenge. You know, yes, I struck back. It wasn't great, but most people, you could understand that, couldn't you? A lot of people understand revenge. It's like, yeah, it isn't great, but they get it. Okay, so yeah, you're not bad for doing what you did. Or sometimes people can sort of frame things in a very, uh, you know, proactive first strike kind of way. Uh, I did what I did, you know, in order to protect myself. They could hurt me. They were going to hurt me. There was a risk of them hurting me, so I struck first to eliminate that possibility. Well, that's a second possibility. Mm -hmm. uh, the third one is what I call sort of a, a compensation narrative, where, if you know what, uh, the world has hurt me in some way. The world has disadvantaged me in some way. And so somebody somewhere has to pay, right? Because revenge is sort of, you know, going backward and saying, you know, this, this individual hurt me or this group hurt me. I'm going to target them. So revenge is sort of going back in time. You know, compensation basically says somebody somewhere hurt me or the world in general has uh, treated me unfairly. So I deserve payback in some way. And so if, if my sense of uh, being compensated requires other people to be disadvantaged or to suffer, then I'm willing to do that. Okay, so that, that second tier of strategies in, I am not bad, those are some examples of some of the ways there. What if that doesn't work? What if you say, well, you know, yeah, what I did was bad, and you know what, I really don't have great reasons for it. The next fallback is, uh, yeah, I'm no worse than you. Okay, so I'm not saying what I did was great. I'm not saying my reasons are great, but haven't you done the same things? You know, you're a hypocrite if you accuse me, if you judge me for things that you've done yourself. Well, that's a very interesting one, right? There's ownership of the badness of the intent, potentially, the badness of the consequences, but what's the underlying message? Yeah, I'm not saying it's great, but I still don't deserve to be rejected. I still don't deserve to be cast out because if you're going to cast me out, you've got to cast yourself out too. And so that's kind of a that's kind of a sneaky one there, okay? Because it's ownership, but it's still saying that you know I'm still not deserving of rejection. And the last one, and this is at one level the most subversive, is to say you know what, um, what I did wasn't good. What I did may have had bad consequences. You may think that my motives are bad. I don't care. Why don't I care? Because I'm more powerful than you. And so asserting one's power then becomes kind of the, the, the ultimate play to, uh, to deal with uh, being accused of, of being evil. And in those instances, that's the rare instance where somebody say, you know what, you think I'm evil? That's fine. I'm evil. What are you going to do about it? And the subtext there is you can label me whatever you want. Ultimately, you can't really hurt me. I can hurt you, but you can't hurt me. Now, that's, a, that's an interesting one because uh, does that show up in instances sometimes where somebody protests too much? You know, I need for you to perceive me as evil. If you will perceive me as evil, then you'll be scared of me. If you perceive me as evil, you'll leave me alone. 
if you perceive me as evil, you won't try to hurt me. And so can that, that label give me some sense of protection? Okay, so it may be a protest too much situation sometimes, but this is the idea. It's a very, it's a very judo-like move. It's sort of moving with the label and trying to find power in the label itself. So it's a pretty broad umbrella, and we see that there's different stops along the way, but I think it's a pretty comprehensive approach. Mm -hmm. Particularly that last bit, I think, connects very well to my next question. So since there's lots of social costs associated with receiving the label of evil, why is it that people even put themselves in that situation to begin with? Absolutely. Uh, and this is another simple, I would argue profound, but also possibly seen as simplistic answer, uh, is that um, as human beings, we're always chasing feelings. Uh, I use the term chasing feelings. We're, we're presumably uh, wanting to uh, pursue some outcome that allows us to feel good, whatever that means, uh, feel more good and feel less bad. And so uh, in the book, for example, I use this principle, what I refer to as the mind over matter principle. And this actually came from a grade school teacher of mine. One of my classmates raised his hand and wanted to go to the bathroom. And you know, at that particular moment, my teacher said, no. The student said, why? He said, it's mind over matter. I don't mind and you don't matter. And it's awful that I still remember that and later said <laughs> about evil based on one of my grade school teachers. What does that say about my education? Which is actually really good in a lot of ways. Uh, but he said something profound. He said, you know, uh, in essence, mind over matter means I am willing to pursue a course of action. Uh, and I am willing to live with whatever I perceive to be as the damage to others and even to myself that may result in that. And one of the, um, one of the big takeaway messages that I really want people to get is it is so easy, we may come back to this towards the end, it is so easy to think about evil as something out there, to think about it as something as that others do, that, you know, alien species that were once human do and so forth, because we think of these extreme acts. But on a much smaller scale, anytime an individual pursues a course of action with intent that causes harm and other people don't see it as justified, then the label of evil potentially applies. So the question becomes then, how do people deal with that with the marketing in the background? Well, somehow or another, even proactively, they have to make the case to themselves that this is going to be worth it. The positive feeling payoff that I'm going to get as a result of pursuing this course of action is going to be worth any possible blowback, any possible harm or consequences I see uh, falling to myself or to other people. And so, uh, so there's a variety of sort of mental strategies that people can do in that. And, and one of the things that, that is a real complicator has to do with uh, you know, what's sometimes called tunnel vision. You know, we're, we're only going to be affected by uh, costs and rewards that occur to us uh, at a given point in time. If we're not reflecting on the full range of possibilities of things that could happen, either to other people or to ourselves, 
then that's not going to shift our attention in the same way. One example that I give in the book, and this is a new story from a number of years ago. Uh, so a fellow, uh, he worked as a travel agent, and uh, he was married, uh, but he also had a mistress. And his mistress wanted to go someplace nice on a getaway. So as a travel agent, he thought, well, um, I don't have a lot of money, but I want to try to keep this relationship intact. But uh, so what do I do? Hmm, what do I do? Well, he uh, basically said, okay, we'll go on a trip. Uh, he sent her a plane ticket. It was actually a fake plane ticket. Uh, and so, you know, so he, he went through the motions of, yes, I'm going to do this good thing for you. But now it's actually a fake ticket, so how is he going to deal with that? Well, here's what I do. I'm going to uh, go to an internet cafe and I'm going to send in a bomb threat to the airport. So they're going to have to shut down the airport. So it's like, well, we tried, but we just couldn't do it. So this is in fact what happened. We ended up sending in a bomb threat to the airport from, uh, from an internet cafe. Security came in, airport operations were suspended. And so we think about, you know, all of the monetary cost, all of the emotional cost, you know, stress people, scare people, that sort of thing. Potentially thousands of people, uh, their lives were disrupted because this person said, you know what, this seems like a good idea to come. I'm trying to, you know, uh, show my mistress that I care, but in a way that doesn't make me follow through. And so I'm going to try to come up with something that can have massive consequences uh, for lots of other people. But it seemed like a good idea at the time. There's another instance I talk about uh, in the UK where somebody who basically said, you know what, they were bored, they wanted to have a little fun, so they set up a, a fake bomb inside the tube system. So they have these fake bombs going off inside the subway because they just wanted to see the chaos that it did to. So people are terrified, people are scared. People may, you know, have, you know, with heart conditions or something, you know, maybe maybe they're going to have heart attacks or something from the from the threat associated with that. Why am I doing it? For a bit of fun. So the idea is, uh, I don't mind enough. You don't matter enough for me to not do what I'm doing. And uh, and you know that simple principle is actually a profound one because. It really comes down to priorities. And a simple example that I would use is, you know, if we think about a scale of one to ten, you know, a ten beats a one, yes. A ten also beats a nine. And so, you know, uh, so somebody can be a nine on a ten scale, but if somebody values some other priority as a ten, the ten will beat the nine. You know? And that sets up some profound differences of understanding sometimes. The person who is uh, who uh, is the nine can feel completely devalued to say, you don't care for me at all. And the perpetrator says, well, yes, I do. You're a nine. But a 10 beats a nine just like a beats a one. So mind over matter, it's a simple principle, but it's one that applies across situations. And the thing is, um, one of the things that we know based on some other published research and so forth is we as individuals can be very bad at what's called moral forecasting. It's very easy for us to look at somebody else, you know, and say, oh, they're idiots. Why would they do that? I never would have done that. I could have seen that coming. There's a whole, you know, entertainment series on dumbest criminals. It's like, oh, look at what an idiot that person is. The thing is, moral forecasting has to do with 
how we think we would deal with the situation, what we think would do, we would deal with the situation. And we're really typically pretty bad at it because we tend to underestimate the power of the situation. Okay? What well, sets up a lot of those differences of perception as well. But mind over matter, it applies to very small things, it applies to very big things. So for, you know, we may talk about group related stuff here. If someone says, you know what, we need a genocide, then they're doing a mind over matter series of calculations in order to say, you know what, yes, this is worth it. And so, you know, stealing something petty or causing suffering for thousands or millions of people, fundamentally is the same kind of calculus involved. Mm -hmm. Are there any individual differences in terms of personality or any other components of our psychology that make some people more predisposed to performing evil actions than others? Uh, the issue of individual differences is a, is a thorny one in part because, uh, from my perspective at least, it's very easy for people to misunderstand uh, what individual differences or individual difference measures are. So, you know, a popular uh, cluster of measures in personality psychology now is what's referred to as the dark triad, psychopathy, Machiavellianism, and narcissism. And uh, there has been an awful lot of research done over the last little while whereby, uh, you know, people will take this dark triad cluster and they will use it to predict some nasty outcome and actually, you know, mm -hmm. give a list you know, a very small list of a very big set of research uh, in my book. And the difficulty that I think people uh, can get into sometimes is uh, thinking that uh, what these measures have, these so-called traits, the traits are somehow like these little engineers in the head that cause these things. When we look at trait measures, trait measures essentially ask how do you move through the world? What are you likely to do? You know, in fact, some researchers have said if there is a core to the dark triad, it can maybe be uh, simplified down into one statement. I exploit other people. And so, in essence, what you're talking about there is a, is a worldview or, or a life philosophy, a way of moving through the world that says, in general, this is how I'm going to proceed. Well, if that is the understanding, so in other words, uh, these trait measures are descriptions of behavior, descriptions of behavioral tendencies. And so if we look at something like the dark triad and we say, okay, this general cluster of descriptive tendencies predicts some specific nasty outcome, that shouldn't surprise us. This is a specific example of these overall general tendencies. So yes, something like dark triad is predictive, but uh, I think it's, it's a little misleading to say that it's somehow causal. Now there's uh, other types of things that I think are more uh, psychologically interesting because they involve a little bit more of an engine. So uh, something like uh, shame, for example. Uh, shame is an interesting one because uh, at its core, the way researchers think about shame and guilt, for example, the way I sometimes talk about it is guilt is guilt says I did something wrong, shame says I am something wrong. Okay, 
Guilt is about behavior. Shame is about the person. Uh, and what's interesting about that then uh, is if shame says, I am wrong, there's something wrong with me, not something wrong with what I've done, that gets us into Mahatma territory. If, if I'm experiencing shame, one way of understanding that is I'm no longer acceptable. I'm beyond what normal people are and so forth. And so I think shame it can be a very, very powerful motivator because it's linked into that avoiding the mark of pain type thing. And so I've actually uh, been uh, working on uh, some recent research where we're actually trying to develop a shame phobia scale that has to do with how reactive to the prospect of experiencing shame people are. And what's interesting about that is uh, some of the items that sort of link up with that fundamental fear of experiencing shame has to do with this understanding that guilt and shame go hand in hand. People who are shame phobic say, you know what, if I experience guilt, shame is an inevitable consequence. And there's individual differences on that. Not everybody thinks that way. Some people can say, you know what, I can feel guilty, I can feel bad about something that I've done without feeling like a horrible human being. Other people say, you know what, if I feel bad about something that I've done, I automatically feel like a piece of trash. Well, what's interesting about that then is if that is this marketing type dynamic and people see guilt as kind of the automatic trigger of shame, then people are going to want to avoid guilt too. Mm -hmm. well, you can avoid guilt by trying to never do anything wrong or when you do things wrong, try to justify it, try to deflect it, try to lie about it, try to put it back on other people, etc. And so this gets us into dark triad looking behaviors again, right? So something like shame and sensitivity, I think, is a particularly profound direction because uh, shame is an, is an emotion that maps very closely onto that marketing idea. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned shame uh, what is the relationship that evil has with other emotions like hate, fear, anger, and disgust, for example? Okay, well, I'll stop uh, for a second there and say I don't think hate is an emotion, as, as the way people uh, talk about it, but we can talk about hate in the context okay. of other things. Um, fear, anger, and disgust, sometimes I refer to as... Uh, as the propaganda's big three. Uh, it makes people afraid enough, angry enough, and disgusted enough. You can motivate them to do all kinds of harmful things towards other people, right? Um, you know, basically, uh, fear says, you know, you could hurt me, I've got to get you before you can get me. Anger, I feel like, you know, there's an injustice. My core, uh, you know, uh, my, my goals have been blocked in some way. You're responsible, so I need to get you for that. Disgust oftentimes involves a sense of moral injury. You know, my uh, my values are being uh, compromised or subverted in some way. And again, in every instance, you know, it's not simply free-floating fear, anger, or disgust, but the, the, the savvy propagandist will say, are you afraid? Are you angry? Are you disgusted? Here's why. That person, that group, 
their why. Mm-hmm. Their why you feel what you feel. And then the spirit of chasing feelings and the spirit of mind over matter, if you want to feel less of this, this is what you need to do. You need to target that group. Or you know what? If you don't want to get messy, give me the authority to do it and I'll take care of it for you. And so fear, anger, disgust, those can be three powerful emotional triggers uh, for harmful behavior. Well, where does harmful behavior come from? One of the main uh, drivers of harmful behavior, I would argue, is actually hate. And, you know, depending on the theorist and their specific definitions, there's been a lot of debate whether or not hate should be considered uh, as an emotion. at least based on a series of the of published studies that we've done and so forth, looking at you know, the, the prototype of hate, so what are the core features of hate, um, hate seems to be primarily the core element of hate is the intent to harm, the desire of that harm comes to some target. And so from that perspective, the core of hate is not emotional, it's actually motivational. It's that wanting the other to come to harm the desire to participate in that harm directly, uh, if need be. And if not directly, because there may be too many costs and consequences associated with that, hoping that someone else will do it, or hoping that the universe will act on your behalf and they'll get theirs, right? And so we've shown in a number of studies, for example, that that intent to harm seems to be the, the, the core element of hate. You can take everything else away, even strong emotions, even a sense of outrage and a revulsion and so forth. People see those as being somehow relevant to hate, but not hate, not the essence of hate. And the way to understand that is, yes, indeed, I absolutely suggest fear, disgust, loathing, all of those things, they're all, I would argue, best understood as potential antecedents of hate. So in other words, they can trigger the desire to harm. You know, a kind of a a simple example that I give is, you know, let's say uh, somebody is like, you know, hiding behind a door waiting for somebody to come in and they want to jump out and scare them. So that person's initial reaction may be, ah! And then oftentimes they're like, you idiot, what are you doing? Right? And so what's happened there? You made me afraid. Damn you for making me afraid. And so we get an aggressive response, we get an angry response, and we get the, you know, the pushback or something. It's like, what are you doing? This was stupid, right? You scared me. You had no right to scare me. It's your fault that I felt this bad feeling. No, okay? And so we can see any of a number of emotional triggers for that desire to harm. And while what I would argue is that desire to harm, that motivation to push, that ultimately the purpose. Mm-hmm. And what is the psychology associated with a hater? Because you also get into that in the book. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and, and the relevance, and we can plug that directly in the psychology of evil. There's, uh, there's, there's a cobble, kind of cobbled together research from a number of uh, sources a lot of people almost tend to spontaneously associate evil with hate. They see those two, mm-hmm. they treat them as almost synonymous. And I think there's a good psychological reason why that's the case. We can go back to our core principles. The 
we think about the three feature model of evil, the evil prototype, what is it? Harm, intent, lack of justification. What is hate as we describe it? Intent to harm. Hate, then, the motive is essentially two thirds of the prototype of evil. There's intent, there's desire to harm, right? So there's harm there. Mm -hmm. What's missing? Lack of justification. So what this does then is this set up the potential hater on another concept. If they want to avoid the mark of pain, then they have to justify hate, mm -hmm. right? And so uh, the simplest way to do that is to uh, portray the target as evil, you know, because it's okay to, you know, want to harm those who are irredeemable and who are on the threats. And so it's the same kind of dynamics that we see again is, you know, what kind of toolbox do we have for justifying hate? And by the way, uh, we did a, uh, we did a study, it's unpublished, but I talk about it in the book, very similar to the myth that you're evil, evil symbol study that I talked about earlier, where we had those same three conditions, exposure to evil symbols, religious symbols, and neutral symbols. And then instead of having people do the myth of your evil scale, we have people do a word completion test. And so it's a, it's a word with a missing letter and you fill that in to make another word. And so in this particular case, uh, it was, you know, the English word H A blank E. So the idea is you could fill it in with a T to make the word hate or any of a number of words like have, for example. Mm -hmm. What we found is that people who were exposed to evil symbols were twice as likely roughly to complete the word with a T to make the word hate as compared to folks in the other two conditions which didn't differ from each other. So people do in fact spontaneously associate that. So people are going to want to deflect, uh, you know, the sense of uh, they're evil if they're hating. And so the easiest way to do that is accuse the target of being evil. So you're good, you're not evil, and it's okay to want to destroy. Uh, so, um, so, so that's one possible uh, thing that people can do. Uh, and on some occasions as well, people can uh, quibble with the definition of hate. They can say, you know, if they're accused of hating, they can say hate is something else. So, for example, if you say, you know, you want to hurt that person, therefore, based on my definition, you hate that person. Well, a person says, nah, uh because hate's behavior. Hate's what you do. I can want to do this, but I'm not doing it, so it's not really hate. Okay, so maybe I can get off the hook that way. Or, you know, somebody else can say, uh, nah, uh because hate has to be premeditated. If it's impulsive, you know, it's not really hate. It's like, nah, we actually have research that suggests that uh, impulsive acts in that moment, if they cause harm and they appear to be intentional, people see those as hateful. And that that's a very interesting thing, that, you know, somebody can um, act impulsively, and they can feel regret, they can feel remorse later, but in that moment, did they want to harm? In that moment, did they want to harm? And if the answer is yes, I would say, you know what, they're hating in that moment, okay? But, so that's another possibility that people do. They can try to redefine hate, okay? Uh, another strategy as well is to try to divert attention away from the harmful intent onto something else. So there's a couple strategies for doing that. One is to focus in on the ultimate goal, because in some of my theoretical work with John Ripple here at St. Jerome's, uh, 
uh, on faith. Uh, we talk about uh, subtypes of faith where sometimes, you know, sometimes in the case of nihilistic faith, the desire to harm a target is an end in itself. Sometimes it's a means to some other end. So we talk about something like redress, for example, harming the other with the goal of balancing the scales of justice. Well, if uh, if I'm not wanting to, uh, you know, get labeled as evil, again, what I'm going to focus in on is the good goal associated with harming the other. So let's not talk about the intent to harm. Let's talk about the justice that will result. So don't accuse me of evil because look at what the end goal is. Uh, another possibility is, uh, and this is a really unsettling one, it's hate, but let's call it love. So in the theoretical work that, that we do, one of the subtypes we talk about, we refer to as something called tethering. And in this case, tethering is a subtype of hate that involves wanting to harm the other uh, in order to, in essence, disable them so they won't abandon them. Uh, in the uh, Stephen King novel and movie uh, made uh, from that called Misery, there's a woman who's obsessed with this, you know, romance writer who happens to, you know, uh, uh, have a car accident uh, near her house. She finds him, takes him in, starts to nurse him, nurse him back to health, but when it looks like he's going to leave her, she breaks his ankles. She hobbles him, right? And after that moment, she says, God, I love you. And the thing is, uh, that's a fictional representation. It's a horror representation. But we find some of those dynamics in the literature. You know, sociobiologists will refer to as mate-guarding behaviors. The idea is, you know, uh, if an individual is threatened that their partner may leave them for somebody else, then what will they do? They'll talk bad about their partner, you know, uh, to other potential rivals or, you know, they'll limit their access to those rivals and so forth. In other words, they will tether them. They will harm them enough to keep them close and make sure that they don't go away. And so, uh, uh, so I've got, you know, I'm working on some research now with one of my honor students. We're actually trying to get data to see, you know, how often is this the case where people label hate as love if these are the kinds of circumstances. You know, so for example, you know, uh, it's not hate, but jealousy. You know, stalkers mm -hmm. say this, you know, oh, you know, uh, I love you so much, you're making me crazy. You know, it, it, it's because I love you so much that I'm doing all these crazy things. Well, actually, no, that's a, that's a bad ad campaign. What I would argue is in those moments, if it involves willingness to harm the other, to try to prevent them abandoning uh, you. That's not love, that's hate. Okay, so, so those are a variety of strategies whereby haters can do what they're going to do potentially in trying to avoid love. Let's talk now, now a little bit more about sadism then. So what is sadism and do you, I mean, in this literature about evil, do we, do you think about it as the dark, dark triad trait or as something a little bit different? Well, um, some people have uh, you know, tried to adopt a new phrase, dark tetrad, because they <laughs> the sadistic personality tendencies should be added on to Machiavellianism, psychopathy, and narcissism. And so we can look at these four general ways of moving the world. And to be, and to be clear, 
there are dispositional measures to say this. And so do people say they tend to move through the world enjoying causing harm and chaos and other lives and so forth. So again, it is a descriptive statement of a kind of lifestyle. And without a doubt, if we look at uh, dispositional sadism and we measure it as an individual variable, a lot of folks are looking at what that predicts. And people who will say, yes, I tend to move through the, through the world in that way, are more likely to say, I do lots of specific things that cause chaos and suffering for others and I enjoy it. So for example, bullying, cyberbullying, trolling, etc. right? There's all kinds of things that are predictive of that. So without question, there is an individual difference in literature that is relevant. Um, from, from my perspective, if we, if we dig a little deeper and try to think conceptually, okay, what is sadism? Um, I prefer to, to plug sadism into a conceptual framework that we've already got in that the argument that I make is that sadism is actually a subtype of hate, okay? And so I'm thinking again, hate is uh, ultimately motivational, hate is the intent to harm. Uh, if we use that as our foundational understanding and I've tried to make the argument that we can, then sadism involves intent to harm as a means to an end of some sort of personal gratification, pleasure, arousal, satisfaction, etc. So the, in other words, uh, the sadistically motivated individual is in essence saying, I am willing to subject another being, person, animal, or something to harm because it gratifies me in some way. It makes me feel good in some way. And so ultimately I have a motivational understanding of what sadism is. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I mean, is it something common or rare? And are there, for example, situations where people that wouldn't even score high on sadism would still feel good about hurting others or derive some pleasure from something bad that happened to them? Yeah, there's there's a over really the past uh, 10 years or so, uh, some of the work with uh, that Erin Buckles and some of her colleagues have done, you know, they actually use the term everyday sadism. And, uh, and they're actually taking the individual difference approach to that. Prior to some of that work, when people talk about sadism, they typically talk about it in a forensic clinical sense. So oftentimes when they talk about sadism, they were referring to almost exclusively to sexualized motivation and so forth and so talking about you know uh, uh prison populations offender populations and so forth but uh if we step back and from my perspective <clears throat> if we take uh a view that um sadistic uh, sadistic motivation is this intent to harm with the desire for emotional payoff we start to see it in lots more everyday context and so uh, in other words if we scale back the severity of harm and we look for the structure, if we look for the motivational structure, we start to see it in a lot of context. And so, for example, there are researchers uh, that look at the, what's called schadenfreude or sadistic emotion. So the sense of, you know, something bad happened to this individual and I feel good about it and so forth, right? So, so there's lots of, you know, uh, situational variation associated with that. If we feel like, you know, 
this person is being too high and mighty or this person is being arrogant or something. And so we see something bad happen to them. A lot of folks will go like, yeah, okay. There's a sense of, okay, that's gratifying in some way. You know, they got taken down a notch, so that feels good, right? Uh, some of my own research, uh, I've actually uh, suggested that sadistic motivation is a, is a mechanism that can make sense out of uh, some behaviors like cramps. And so, uh, so, but what I would argue is the core of a prank is the prankster is, is willing to subject an individual to some degree of psychological or physiological discomfort because it's hilarious, because it's gratifying in some way. And, you know, in, in pranksters, you know, there will be talk of successful pranks. For a prank to succeed, there has to be a gotcha. It has to be done well enough so the person on the receiving end can actually experience some measure of that discomfort. Well, if an individual is willing to subject another to harm because that's going to be hilarious, that's going to make me feel good about myself and so forth, that is a sadistic dynamic. And so, in fact, we've actually done uh, a few empirical studies that, that have demonstrated that. And um, the model of sadistic motivation that I'm working with is, uh, I, you know, where does this desire to harm the other uh, for that sort of gratification payoff come from? Uh, I think it comes from uh, a combination of two things. Uh, well, broadly speaking, uh, I see sadistic motivation as this desire to, to boost the self back up uh, after it having been squashed or put down in some way. And so we actually use uh, two individual difference variables in combination to uh, predict the sort of vulnerability for experiencing sadistic motivation. One of them is disrespect sensitivity. So the idea of I move through the world looking for signs that I'm being disrespected. And when I feel disrespected, that really, really, really bothers me. Okay, So there's that sense of being put down by other people, being looked down upon by other people. So that's one thing. The other thing we look at as well, then, is a measure of anger rumination. So this idea of I look back on past episodes where I've experienced anger, many of which involve some kind of interpersonal insult, and I can't let go of it. I keep rehearsing it over and over again. So these two things tend to be correlated. And if we look at people who tend to score higher on both of those at the same time, theory is those are the people that are going to be likely to uh, show sadistic motivation. So one of our very first prank studies, uh, simply retrospective, we asked people, you know, have you ever pranked anybody before? If yes, think about the best, from your perspective, the best prank that you've ever done. Uh, you know, mentally walk yourself through the before, during, and after. Among other things, what we uh, do is we ask people to rate uh, the emotions that they were experiencing as they were planning the prank. There was a cluster of positive emotions there. Uh, things like uh, uh, feeling excited, feeling happy, feeling joyful. You know, it sounds like the kinds of things that positive psychologists would look at and say, this is lovely, yes, let's get more of that, okay? Well, the kicker is what predicted that. That combination of high disrespect sensitivity and anger rumination predicted that cluster of positive emotions associated with planning a prank. 
Okay, so so that's what we found in that context. And what was interesting about that, we included a dispositional measure of sadistic uh, tendencies in there. Our measure predicted over and above that dispositional sadistic measure of those reactions. Second study, we have people uh, watching pranks. And so we had them look at a couple of different prank videos and react to those. And again, we were tapping, you know, how much they enjoyed it, uh, how much they were able to kind of hook themselves up relative to the other person. So it's like, I wouldn't have fallen for that. They were really stupid. I wish I was involved in the prank. I probably could have done the prank better than the prankster did. So all of it, I'm feeling good and I'm feeling good about myself relative to this person. Well, so we had people uh, look at that, but there's one other piece of there. Before we had people uh, state the reaction to the prank, they read this little uh, description, this little reminder. Uh, some people read that, you know, yeah, this is what happened here, but probably there, there weren't any long-term consequences. This was short-term, and these people got over it. The other one suggested, you know, given what we saw here, there's a good likelihood that these people may have had long-term consequences. Um, and what was interesting then is our disrespect sensitivity anger elimination index that predicted uh, positive reactions to pranks again, but only when people read the message about long-term consequences being likely. When uh, the consequences were presented as short-term, it showed the opposite pattern. So what that suggests is we're looking at the real deal. Disrespect sensitivity anger elimination. For people who watch those pranks and get off on it, they needed to be reminded that there was the real prospect of long-term suffering there. And so disrespect, sensitivity, anger, rumination, I think that's a combination that sets people up for this likelihood of, you know, wanting to hurt others because there's a positive emotional payoff. And ultimately what the tool, I think, is, is there's a sense of, uh, that those positive emotions are indicators that the self is being boosted back up again. And I think, in fact, there's a lot of uh, hostility underlying this. In many cases, that people experiencing these kinds of things aren't aware of. You know, if we look back to the uh, planning the prank study and so forth, people seem happy. They seem almost giddy. They don't seem angry. They don't seem hostile. But now here's the thing. What if somebody said, no, nah, that's not cool what you're doing, okay? What reaction might they get? Come on, man, God, you're making a big deal out of it. Quit being such a baby, it's just a joke, God. You know, if you get that kind of reaction, you know, let's say in a pranking context, it suggests that there's some underlying hostility. And it may be, and, and actually I'm working with a couple of students now, we're trying to see whether or not we can find evidence of implicit hostility that's there, this comes to the surface, that isn't something that people are aware of every day. Mm -hmm. So in characterizing evil, we've been focusing mostly on individuals, but how does it manifest in groups? And is there something about how it manifests in groups that makes it essentially different from how we see it in individuals? Well, there's a yes and a no uh, to those questions, right? Because ultimately we have to remember that groups are comprised of individuals. And so especially, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, 
you know, we, we need not, you know, we mustn't lose sight of that. So, for example, uh, you know, uh, various corporate practices, you know, some corporations that have, let's say, more aggressive or ethically questionable business practices and so forth. In many cases, they will recruit individuals that they think are going to be more likely to, you know, uh, endorse that worldview and go along with it. And so, you know, I don't know if they're using dark triad indicators and screening instruments, but that's a possibility, right? So there are individual decision makers in there. The thing is, uh, the thing about groups, uh, groups have the capacity to uh, uh, exponentially increase, for example, the amount of harm that can result uh, by, mm -hmm. by imposing an organizational structure, by in essence taking a, uh, an assembly line approach to whatever the outcome is. Uh, a lot more harm can be done with a lot less effort by having individuals be coordinated. So that's one of the ways that groups can cause more harm by that sort of division of labor. The other thing that complicates things uh, has to do with the interface of the individual in the group and the group itself when it comes to things like responsibility for harmful outcomes. Uh, you know, and this is something that uh, People struggle with when there, you know, when there are war crime tribunals, when there are, uh, you know, corporate corruption hearings and that sort of thing. Is who is responsible? I mean, there's some research suggesting, for example, that that corporations uh, have a kind of fuzzy personhood that uh, they're they're seen as capable of acting as individuals, but without the same emotional sensitivities of individuals. And so, when a group uh, ends up perpetrating a lot of wrongdoing, a lot of suffering for a lot of other people, who do we hold responsible? The leadership? Um, a few bad apples? Everybody? Nobody? How does that work? And that actually creates a lot of struggle. And so for individuals within organizations then that are engaged in harmful practices, that makes things complicated as well because it allows mark of pain dynamics to drive individual strategies to stay inside the organization as well. So people can say things like, you know what, uh, I do this, I don't do that. You know, I'm not mm -hmm. responsible for the, for the big bad decisions or, you know, I just take care of the numbers, I'm not doing that over there. Or people may uh, appeal to necessity. It's like, you know, uh, I'm doing what I have to do. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I have to have a job because I have to feed my family, et cetera. Or, you know, uh, I have to do this because if I don't do this, I'm scared of what they'll do to me and so forth, right? And so individuals then, not surprisingly, for them to keep doing what they're doing, they're going to have to tell a story that's going to either make it good or not bad or we're more powerful than you anyway in order to pull that off. Right. And so we see similar dynamics. There are some individual elements there, but then there are some sort of exponential increases uh, that result from group dynamics. And this can play out in a, in a lot of interesting ways. Uh, you know, we can see uh, we can see individual dynamics of so something like we talked about the sadism, for example, playing out in collective context. For example, uh, if you look at, you know, genocidal campaigns that involve massacres. So, Specific events that involve, you know, uh, killing a lot of uh, a lot of individuals uh, uh, at once, but oftentimes doing so in brutal, humiliating sort of ways, right? 
clearly when we look at that, there are sadistic elements there. And there, in fact, uh, they've done some research on, you know, like looking at transcripts of war crime tribunals and so forth, and actually found what I would argue would be evidence of disrespect, sensitivity, and so forth, that may be a driver for those who are participating in massacres. One of the things that's really interesting is some of, some of the, uh, the work done by um, Rochlow, uh, who has, has talked about massacres, uh, I find actually really unsettling, but really, really important, suggesting that, you know, starting point, most of us don't want to kill other people. Uh, and, but yet massacres happen, and so the question becomes, you know, how is it that people who participate in massacres kill other people and oftentimes do so in these very brutal and very humiliating sort of ways. Well, what they will do, uh, according to Rochelle, is uh, they need to overcome this kind of, of, of barrier that allows the killing to start and then allows the killing to be maintained. And so what Rochelle argues is that the, they need to develop a sort of triumphant celebratory uh, atmosphere. And so there's this sense of Hooping and hollowing and riding the wave of positive emotion. And what I've argued is those positive emotions are actually the outcome of sadistic motivation, right? And so it's a matter of trying to keep those positive emotions stirred up and so keep, keeping people in that zone that allows the atrocities to be committed. Mm -hmm. I have two final questions. So the first one, what would you say are some of the most common misconceptions people have of evil and evildoers? Uh, well, first of all, I think one of the big ones is that, uh, that they are they. We've already talked about the, the myth of pure evil and, and some of the consequences associated with that. That evildoers are the other, they're unknowable, they're completely like everybody else, they're possibly not even human. Uh, at least not anymore. So I think that that's one thing. Uh, another thing that goes along with that is that evildoers are evil through and through. And in fact, I, uh, I mentioned a study that one of my honor students uh, did a couple of years ago that sort of taps this idea that, uh, you know, the example that I get is that for many folks, it's hard to imagine a serial killer doing laundry. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's difficult to imagine them doing something mundane like that, unless they're doing it for sinister purposes. If they're doing laundry to eliminate DNA evidence, okay, but they won't just do laundry. And so we actually did a study where we found some evidence of that. When, when people see uh, someone as an evildoer, they're not only more likely to do bad things and less likely to do good things, they're less likely to do mundane things too. And so there's a sense of the evilness is expanding into their entire lifestyle. So they simply don't have time for anything. So, so that's one thing. Um, you know, the um, the other thing that I think is important, and in, in, you know, that goes along with that is is we tend to see evildoers as being unchangeable or in, irredeemable in some ways. And uh, you know, so can can evildoers be changed? Is a, is a question that some people may ask, right? And uh, I don't think that there's any single answer to that precisely because evil is a label. Evil is not an inherent property. Evil is something that is put on someone else. And in many cases, what we'll see between individuals, between warring exes, between warring factions, warring nations, they'll be labeling each other as evil. 
you know, and we'll see that kind of escalation. And so uh, evil as a label is not something that's fixed, and there's not something that there's universal agreement for in most cases. Um, so, uh, so there's really profound questions. I alluded to it earlier. How many evil leads does it take to make an evil leader? You know, is it just one? And, and if so, once the myth of pure evil is activated, is that label permanent? Does it always stay there, regardless of what the other does? It gets really, really difficult, for example, how do, how do we square narratives? And one example that I talk about in the book that we know from uh, some of the, uh, the tribunals in Rwanda, uh, they refer to killer rescuers. So individuals that may, uh, you know, because of a, they found somebody to be a friend or a, there's a family connection to someone from an opposing tribe, they may protect them, but they may redirect other folks and have them killed. And so we see people saving and killing uh, you know, members of the same outgroup under certain circumstances. There's a story about a, a serial killer who, while incarcerated, you know, spent a lot of his time uh, uh, reading, uh, recording books on tape for the visually impaired because he was connected to somebody who had vision problems. Uh, and so, uh, so it's so easy to, to get into the mindset of evil being the absolute other and so unlike who we ourselves are. And one of the things that I really tried to, to, to do in the book, uh, every chapter of the book starts with a question, and it starts with a question directed to the reader. And part of what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get ourselves to reflect a little bit more. Um, I suspect, I won't say everybody, but I expect that most of us at some point or another have done something harmful, intentional, that was seen by somebody else as unjustifiable. And so probably every one of us has done something that's uh, going to be seen as evil by someone else at some point in time. Uh, and we were probably chasing feelings while we're doing it. And we probably have a whole set of justifications as to why, you know what, we're really okay. We're not really evil and we shouldn't be cast into outer darkness. Uh, and so one of the takeaways I hope in the book is how do we view that now? What do we think about ourselves now? What do we think about our decisions now? You know, if we if we have a language, things like chasing feelings, Mark Cain, uh, toolbox of justifications for deflecting the Mark of Cain, um, how does that fit into our own stories? Uh, are we in a position to make different decisions going forward about what we do? Because one of the things that I tried to do in the book is, yeah, we need to talk about you know severe harm you know, long-term harm, large-scale harm, but structurally smaller instances of everyday harm, everyday suffering, they're going to look really similar. And so if we want to try to understand the big things, I think there's a real value in looking for similar structure in the small things. So that's one of the things that I try to do in the book. Okay, so I think we can end on that note because, in fact, you've already answered my what would be my last question. That and, is, if... and I had my cheat sheet. I had that question in front of me, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to ask if evildoers can be changed, but yeah, you've already gave your answer. So the book is again evil in mind the psychology of harming others yeah uh, there it is visual there so there we are yeah so go and buy it and dr burris just before we go apart from the book where can people find you and your work on the internet 
Um, well, um, there is a, my, it's not really an official website, but burris.socialpsychology.org will, you know, will get that. And you can easily do a, a Google Scholar search uh, with my name, and that will show uh, a lot of my publications, things on things like hate, sadism, uh, um, love. <laughs> Try to do some positive things, too, on things like religion and spirituality as well. So, uh, so probably pretty easy to track down. Great. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. And I really love the book. So Thank you so much, Ricardo. I appreciate your kind words and thanks for the opportunity. Much appreciated. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing and to keep the channel sustainable, please consider supporting me on Patreon or PayPal. All of the links are in the description box of this interview. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like, and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check the website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke and Blanchett, Perga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingberg, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Ian Riccalenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Wo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger, Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegar, Rui Narcio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Mark Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurban, Simon Columbus, George Pinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernadini, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Ivan Bodrin, Kuala Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Aslan Bullet, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W. John Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dajda Araujo, Romain Roach, Dermitri Gregoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rosmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, John Linares, Lida Cosmides, Saima Afzal, Adrian Gage, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, Dennis Cook, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Todd Shackelford, Sunny Smith and John Wiseman. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Luis Caetano, Tom Wagner, Dan Curtis Dixon, John Linares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardis Francis, Thomas Trumbull, and Nuno Welder, and my executive producers, Michel Ruggieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.